This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. I can't speak for where you're at. Uh... There can sometimes be a dulling in our spiritual life. Uh, Some of you may be so dull that you're wondering if you even have life. Uh, Some of you, the edge of your spiritual sharpness has grown dull, and it concerns you. And there's something that is very present in the process of uh, growth and maturity in the spiritual life, and that is that the presence of the Holy Spirit is there to correct us in those moments when we begin to dull. And he brings about what I'm going to describe today as a new beginning. And uh, spring, you'll notice even in the seasons of the year, we go through seasons in our spiritual life as well. There's pruning seasons. There's seasons where the obvious fruit in our life uh, isn't there, and then God brings forth a fresh breath of life into us. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to speak to you this morning as once, and I'm speaking to myself as well, that desires to have all dullness removed. I desire to have a sharpness to my soul. And uh, so I think as we go through this, the study of Ahaz, and he was a king in Judah, uh, a very bad king. And what that symbolizes in our life in the transition into Hezekiah, who is a very good king. And they both are set in charge of the nation that God has assigned them. And one handles it well, one handles it right. Or one handles it poorly, one handles it right. In Mark 4, we have a parable that Jesus is giving. And it could be called the parable of the sower, the parable of the soils, the parable of the seed. There's differing opinions of which one we should emphasize but all could be correct. And I'm going to sort of summarize it to make one singular point. So the sower throws seed, and there's different soils that are going to either receive or reject that seed. And it says, Then he taught them many things by parables, speaking of Jesus, and said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and some seed fell among thorns. In this culture, the North American culture, I would say that what the thorns describe is very similar to what we in, we face as a church in North America. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Did they have the seed? Yes. Did they receive the seed? You could even say yes. But what happened? There was something that was allowed into the soil, thorns, that choked the seed from actually growing and maturing and bearing fruit. Now, these are the ones sown among thorns. So then this skips to the end of the parable when Jesus begins to interpret his own parable because they're like, hey, we don't understand these things. He goes, hey, guys, you're so dim-witted that you can't understand these things? All right, I'll help you. It says, now, these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word 
and the cares of the wor- this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. I asked Jesus to give us ears to hear this morning that the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in do not choke the word out of our life. That list of things, I I know we could easily cluck our tongues and look outward and say, I can't believe the North American Christians struggle with those things. However, this is the bait that every single one of us face. Cares of this world. Uh, All you have to do is open your, your life door to the cares of this world and you'll immediately begin to see a diminishment in your spiritual vitality. Cares of this world, are there cares? Are there concerns out there? Yes. However, to entertain them in your inter, inner, inner man as a self-centered care. You know that God desires you to care? He just wants you to be caring for the souls of the lost and for his glory. However, when we burn that care for ourselves, that's when it actually harms our life. It is a selfish care. And so when we allow the things of this world, a, a low bank account, health concerns, relational concerns to actually enter into the living room of our home and stick their muddy boots on our coffee table, it immediately begins to choke out life. And some of you could say, well, I don't have a choice in that. I'm human. And yet, God makes it very clear that he's given you everything you need to keep that door shut. Yes, even to the cares of this world. The second one, deceitfulness of riches, which is a very interesting way of saying it. The lying scheme of riches. Riches are going to say to you, if you have me, I will make your life fine. I will solve all your problems. And so as a result, we have a tendency as one of the chief cares in our life to put riches as our agenda. Even as Christians, we could say, well, if I could just get settled, if I could just get stable, then I'll be a good servant of Jesus Christ. That is the lie of riches. And so as a result, when we allow that lie to rule in our life, to enter in and stick its muddy boots on our coffee table, it begins to choke out the word of God in our life. And the desire for other things entering in. Other things. You could fill in the blank of what that is. And I tell you what, in this culture, we have other things galore. You go into any grocery store in this country, and you go into a third world country and walk into a grocery store, and you're going to see that we have a lot of other things. We have plenteous options when it comes to that which can bait our soul. And many of us, because we do better, one degree better than the world does in regards to the other things, we have a tendency to think that we are keeping the other things out. And yet there are so many things that can come in and sneak in that choke out the word of God in our life. So we're going to study Ahaz. Now that's actually not how you pronounce his name. That's our English transliteration. In the Hebrew it's Ahaz. Ahaz. Aren't you glad we say it Ahaz? Now listen to what his name means. Technically, according to the Hebrew, his name simply means grasping or possessing. Okay. However, what he symbolizes is very interesting because his son, who we know as Hezekiah, is also has a similar meaning to his name, but it means the opposite. Grasping for what belongs to God is the way I'm going to put it today. Taking God's kingdom as if it were his own. This is precisely what Ahaz did. He grasped for the kingdom. It was the kingdom of Judah, and he said, I want it for myself. I want the power, I want the comforts, I want the pleasures. I want it my way. You have been given a body, a kingdom, a mini kingdom, if you want to say it that way. This is the territory. A king 
kingdom is a king's domain. When you become king in your own life, you're not supposed to be king in your own life, but when you sit on the throne of your own life, your own body, and say, this is mine, it is the essence of sin. And so when you claim, you grasp, you, you take for yourself what belongs to God and make it your own, you commit an Ahaz. And what happens is, I, I called this message, Breaking the Ahaz Rut. What we have a tendency to do is to get into ruts in our life which choke out the word of God. And they're very subtle. Some of us are in an obvious rut. We've just rejected God. We knew what we should do and we said, I don't want to do that, God. Okay, that's a rut. And it goes deeper and deeper and deeper. However, every rut has a solution. Every rut that you could possibly be in right now, no matter how deep, how entrenched you are in it, there is a solution in Jesus Christ. That's one of the hopes that I want to bring to us afresh today. Some of us are in a subtle rut. It's just a little uh, rut. But that rut is dangerous. And the moment you are convicted by the Holy Spirit to recognize, whoa, I'm starting to allow in some care again. Okay, you knew last week you were convicted by it, and here you are allowing in the care again. Yeah, there I go. You'll notice that there's an immediate diminishment of your spiritual vitality and sensitivity. And the Word of God is now blurry again. Remember how clear it was when you were seen straight? Now suddenly it's just there's a blur around it. You see, an Ahaz is a dimension of your life, if you want to say it that way. I'm going to liken him to the old man, because that's what he is. He's the father in the story. He's the old man. He's the descendant of Adam, grasping for what belongs to God. Some of us this morning, we might find that our hand is on that which belongs to God. He's going to say, what am I doing grabbing that? That's not mine. That's his. Taking God's kingdom as if it were his own. Ahaz. So he's the picture of bad news. He's the life of thorns. Ahaz is the pattern of the old man. So I'm going to give you quite a few things that Ahaz is in this story. He's grasping for control, for power, and for preeminence. Second Chronicles 28. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. So if you study the kings of Israel, you'll see that every single king of Israel did that which was wrong in the sight of the Lord. Now there's two kingdoms. They split after Solomon's reign into two. You had the upper kingdom, which was the ten tribes to the north. And then the southern tribes, which were Judah and Benjamin, were called the kingdom of Judah. And this is a king of Judah. And in the line of the kings of Judah, there's actually a smattering of good kings. Ahaz is not one of them. So, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord as his father David had done. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Oh, that's, that's not a good way to walk. And made molded images for the Baals. Those are false gods. He, imaged, he burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his children in the fire. Boy, this is not a good guy, guys. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Therefore the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Syria. They defeated him and carried away a great multitude of them as captives and brought them to Damascus. Then he also was delivered into the hand of the king of Israel who defeated him with a great slaughter. Some of us, we may not recognize our own spiritual life in that description because our ruts are not as deep as that. And yet when you begin to see subtle defeats in your life, things that you were strong on and now suddenly you don't have the same grip on truth, 
And remember how when that one person was rude to you and you actually just forgave them and were kind back and now you find yourself grumbling and even yelling back at them? It's like, whoa, I think I lost something. In other words, the kingdom of Israel in the reign of David had something and then it lost it. But it's going to regain it back. That's what I want you to see in this story is that the propensity of getting into an Ahaz rut is very real for us as Christians. But the solution is still the same, and that's Jesus Christ. Ahaz, he used the temple of God for his own personal gain. You know, Paul in the New Testament is going to liken this body to the temple of God. Do you not know that you are the temple of the living God? And so what we see in the Old Testament is a pattern. And what we see is Ahaz abuses the temple of God. That's the dwelling place of God Almighty. That's where his presence dwells. And actually, a king has no right to enter into that temple and do the work of a priest. That's not his business. And Ahaz goes out of his jurisdiction, out of his rightful territory, legal territory, and invades the temple of God and steals from it. Oh, guys, this is not good. We, we don't do this, do we? Using the temple of God for our own personal gain? For Ahaz took part of the treasures from the house of the Lord and from the house of the king and from the leaders and he gave it to the kings of Assyria. But he did not help him. But now in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. This is that King Ahaz. I love that final line. It's like, oh, you've heard of King Ahaz? Yeah, this is that King Ahaz. And everyone goes, boo. Look what this guy did. He actually gave a gift of God's temple riches to the king of Assyria. And what does it say of the king of Assyria? He didn't help him anyways. You see, we oftentimes will spend God's good stuff that he's given us on the, world's, on the world to see if we can gain its approval, to see if we can gain its favor, to see if it can come along and help us and buoy us up. And yet it does not help us. This is that King Ahaz. Ahaz, he shared the wealth and beauty of God's temple with the world. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him, saying, Because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. We do the same thing, just in an inverted way. In other words, the world seems to succeed. Have you ever noticed that down the street you have a guy who isn't struggling in his bank account like you are? And you're thinking, what is his secret? How many of us pick up the books of what the world has written to try and figure out how they do things so that we can be more successful in our life and even in our Christianity? And so what we do is we end up going to the world's gods and learning, to, learning of them, giving our time to them, giving our energies, even investing our time, riches, energies into their philosophies. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. Ahaz, allowing the junk of the world inside. See, it's one thing to take the riches and to give them, but then to allow that of the world to enter the temple. Whoa. For the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. Ahaz, he harmed the very temple he was commissioned to protect. You've been given one life, You've been given a body. And God says, that body belongs to me. It is your reasonable act of worship to give it back to God as a, as a living sacrifice. That's actually the logic of Scripture. And yet when we hold on to it, we end up harming the very body that God has commissioned us to protect. 
So Ahaz gathered the articles of the house of God, cut in pieces the articles of the house of God, shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, and made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. Introducing Hezekiah. We're going to call him the new beginning. In other words, what you have is this storyline in Israel where God blesses this nation, reveals to them, gives them the law, gives them the temple, gives them a proper order of worship. This is how you are to keep the temple. This is how you are to live your life. And yet Ahaz comes in. We all are familiar with Ahaz potentials and propensities. And yet what you see is that the death of Ahaz enters a new beginning. And this is always the case in your spiritual life. When you are willing to give up, to repent, to die to a certain behavior pattern, you see that God is always ready to give you a springtime new beginning. This is a really hard name to say. This is actually Hezekiah in the, in the Hebrew. And I, I practiced it this week so I could impress you guys, but it, it's just a hard word to say. Yechizkiah. 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 It doesn't sound anything like Hezekiah to me. Okay? Yechizkiah. You can see why we transliterated it into Hezekiah. So his name actually means Jehovah possesses. Which is really interesting. If you think about what his dad's name meant, Ahaz, it meant grasping or possessing something. But this is Jehovah possesses it. And so he's going to symbolize Jehovah has taken what belongs to him. Jehovah has reclaimed his kingdom. So at any juncture of time when you find yourself sitting on the throne and claiming your life, your body, your time, your energies, your resources for yourself, you'll recognize thorns immediately begin to choke out the word of God. So what do you do? You repent and give God back what he purchased. It's actually that simple. Okay, God, I'm wrong. What am I doing sitting here? What am I doing grasping this? This belongs to you. He is a merciful God. Have you ever heard the statement? I've repeated it to myself all growing up. His mercies are new every morning. Have you ever had that? I, I used that scripture a lot when I was a young Christian. Boy, I tell you what. You know that cyclical pattern of defeat where you're like, God, I'll never do this again. And the next thing you know, you're doing it again. And so the next morning, I'm like, God, it says your mercies are new every morning. I really need that again. However, as a symbolic statement of our life, that's a truth. God knows that we are a work in process and that though we have an Ahaz potential and propensity, it doesn't mean we need to give way to it, but if we did, we have a mediator between God and man. And his name is Jesus Christ. And his shed blood is still efficacious for us. And when we repent and die to that behavior and say, that is not the way I choose to live. I choose to give you this body. I choose to let go of my controls. I choose to trust you instead of fret and give way to care. I recognize that behavior is wrong. It's the old man. This behavior is what pleases you. There's a new beginning. Seven steps towards a new beginning. So let's go through this. This is actually the story of Hezekiah. Okay, there's one of my favorite characters in the Bible is Hezekiah. And there's multiple different renditions of his life. And some of you have heard me give the message, oh, what is it called? Overcoming sin. 
And that's one specific story of 185,000 Assyrians being defeated by God and Hezekiah being holed up in Jerusalem. It was an extraordinary story, a picture. I mean, even Sennacherib, the king of Assyria that is coming against him, his name means sin. Sin literally surrounding the walls of Jerusalem and Hezekiah weakened inside has no ability to fight in his own power. God defeats sin on his behalf. It's just an extraordinary story of how sin is overcome in our life. That's a different tale. This is a specific story. You know the, the story of the sundial being turned back 10 degrees? That's Hezekiah too. This guy has all sorts of different stories that, are, that we know and recognize, but oftentimes they're not written in one little chronological uh, thing in the Bible. They're, they're spread out. So this is another tale of Hezekiah that goes from the transition of Ahaz into his kingdom. So we study Ahaz. God seems to purposely lay out the pattern of his father and then contrast it with the pattern of his life. You see his response to it. Now, of course, in the big picture, this is Jesus Christ. Old man, Adam, new Adam, second man, Jesus Christ. It's the new pattern that is set. However, in our life, we recognize there's an old and there's a new and there's a constant pull back, just like in the kingdom of Judah. There's, there's David, and then there's a pull in Solomon down, downward. And then there's a restoration. You see that in multiple kings, Josiah, Hezekiah, where there is a re- re-emergence of strength and vitality and a new beginning in Judah. So it starts with the death of the old man. So Ahaz rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem, but they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. He's a bad guy. Then Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. So at any juncture, when you recognize that you're reigning in the place of God, what should you do? You should humble yourself, repent, and give Hezekiah, or King Jesus, his rightful place. So old Eric rested. (laughs) Old Eric went to sleep, passed away, so that Jesus Christ could reign in this life. So our personal action today, let go of the kingdom. Now, it sounds highfalutin. For, for many of us that have heard of this, let, letting go, repenting, believing. But literally, I want you to look at the grip of your soul today. There are certain ones of us that have been gripping things that we shouldn't. And the Holy Spirit is tapping our hand, saying, what is that in your hand? Well, God, I feel like if I let that go, something bad will happen, or this may happen. Will you trust him with the controls of your life? It makes no sense for Ahaz to take control of a kingdom that belongs to God Almighty. And you see the effects of it. God wants us to recognize that when we claim or grasp for ourselves that which belongs to God, it leads to death every single time. And so for those of you that know better, you know what to do. You know to let go. For those of you that have never let go of your life ever, let's start today. Let's let go of the kingdom. The death of the old repents of that behavior. That is behavior that destroys your life, that destroys the witness of Christ in and through you. It leads to a dullness. It leads to a rut that gets deeper and deeper. But Jesus is still the Savior from that rut. So let go of the kingdom. Repent of holding something that was not yours to hold. Number two, open the doors afresh. I love this statement. Remember what Ahaz did? He closed the door to the temple. There's a word in the Greek that Paul will use over and over again, especially in the book of Romans. It's peristomy, and some of you have heard me teach on this. It's a hard word to define in the English because it means two things simultaneously. So translators, 
are always trying to figure out how do we say this in the English. So my mental picture that I've given, if you've heard this in the past, is because it's translated typically yield or, uh, well, what's the other word? Uh, present. Present your body as a living sacrifice. That's peristomy. So uh, the concept is a, a truck, a semi-truck. Like, deet, 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 and you're the warehouse. Yet if you've closed your doors to Jesus Christ and said, hey, this is my place, I don't accept anything that you have to bring in, then what you do immediately begin to die because you have no resource, you have no life, and so you begin to wither. So what Paul exhorts us to do is peristomy, open the doors, open the doors, and then yield, allow the cargo of God to enter in. Allow the rulership of God to come in, take his place, take his seat, take what belongs to him, peristomy. It is your reasonable act of service to do it. Present your body. Open it up. And so this is precisely what you're going to see Hezekiah do. He doesn't just let go. His, the old man dies, but then the first thing that Hezekiah does is say, hey, we're going to repair things, guys. He goes to the temple and opens up the doors. That's the first thing he does. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I say let's start right there. Let's perish to me. Let's freshly open up. If this really does belong to God and it's no longer in your control, if that one issue in your life does belong to God and it's no, it shouldn't be under your control and you sense the Holy Spirit correcting that, what should you do? Let it go. Open up. Let the grace of God come in. Let him have his way. It's one thing to open up the doors. It's a whole other thing to let that cargo come in. I remember A.W. Tozier, I was reading the book, The Divine Conquest, and he talked about the fact that we need to not just say, oh, this belongs to Jesus. We need to give him the keys. He owns the keys of the house. Who has the keys? And you're feeling, I don't have them anymore. Who has, who has the, God has the keys. That means he can come and go as he wishes and he doesn't wish to go. <laughs> he wants to move in. Well, what's he going to do if he moves in? Well, uh, he's going to take control. Remember, his Holy Spirit is moving in. That means anything that is unholy, he's going to kick out. Are you sure you want to let the Holy Spirit in? That's what Paul is saying. It's your reasonable act of service, guys. It's only logical. Open up. Let him have his way. He purchased you with his blood. He is the rightful king of this life. That issue that you're facing, that you're grasping, trying to control and manipulate, let it go. It's his. He's the rightful king of that. So don't just let it go. Open up and let him in. Personal action. Open up the doors to your house, your life. Freshly let go of your control. Tell the Holy Spirit that he can have you, all of you, every single inch of you. Number three, clear out the junk. Whenever you start pulling an Ahaz and you begin to get a rut, it's amazing how much junk you can acquire. You ever had that where you do, and I, I'm freshly uh, absorbing this reality in my garage. Uh, I've been doing all sorts of work in the house, so I haven't been tending to my garage. And so... Oh, it's just horrifying. Anytime I walk through the garage, a couple days ago, I couldn't even open the door to the garage because something had fallen back on it. That's how bad my garage was getting because I, okay, just shove that. Can we just put that in the garage for now? And so pretty soon, I have a whole bunch of junk, literally, in the garage. It's just taking up a whole bunch of space because I'm over here tending to this. 
And that's obviously, because this is the same thing that happened in Ahaz's reign, just junk was acquired in the temple of God. You start closing the doors to it, you start ignoring God's presence in there, you don't allow God to have his rightful way, and you're not doing things according to the order as commissioned in Scripture, what happens? You start acquiring junk. So clear out the junk. Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square and said to them, Hear me, Levites. Now sanctify yourselves. Sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. There's rubbish in there. Then the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it and brought out all the debris that they found in the temple of the Lord to the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it out and carried it to the brook Kidron. Yeah, I think we need to allow the Spirit of God to begin carrying out some debris. Some stuff that is gathered in that season of Ahaz rut living. In other words, it does not mean that you're overall, in the whole course of your your spiritual life, an unhealthy Christian, or that the description of your reign is they were a bad Christian. You know that Hezekiah made a lot of mistakes? He did. You know that the overall statement of his life is that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord? He, He made some really bad decisions, and I could go into that. That could be an encouraging message for all of us, just to tell you all of King Hezekiah's mistakes. And you know what? The Bible is just blunt and says it too. It doesn't hide it. But it also says he did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. You see, many of us will make mistakes. However, God is measuring how we respond when he convicts us. You see, none of us will do this perfectly. Though we have been given everything to live our life right, when we fail, when we find ourselves grasping, when we find ourselves sitting on the armchair of the throne, again, And he convicts us, what should we do? Lord, you're right. I repent. Thank you that I have a mediator in Jesus Christ. Thank you that your blood cleanses me from all sin. Thank you that I have a new beginning. Personal action. Correct what is in error. So, in this season, when you started sticking a whole bunch of junk in your garage, what should you do? Just say, ah, what will be will be. I guess I'll always have that junk in my garage. Or what should you do? Well, I ask Steve for his trailer, and I begin to stick a whole bunch of junk in the trailer, and I take it to the Brook Kidron, or the Weld County Dump. <laughs> Correct what is an error. If you lied, what should you do? Just say, oh, it's too bad that I lied. No, tell the truth. You know that that's not very easy when you have a lie lingering out there? Can't we just sort of, God, can you just forgive that? And No, if you lied, make it right. Tell the truth. If you stole, what should you do? Don't just say, oh God, can you forgive me for stealing? How about you take what you stole and you return it with interest? If you disobeyed, obey. You see, you have some junk in there, some debris, some rubbish. And you need to take it to the Brook Kidron. You need to deal with it. If you harmed, then help. If you resented, forgive. If you were harsh, be kind. If you were wrong, do right. You see, take out the rubbish and replace it with that which is right. This shouldn't be there, so what do you do? You remove it and allow that which should be there to be present. What should be there? The grace of God, the love of Jesus, the humility of God, the forgiveness of God, the truth of God. Let the light shine where there was darkness. Number four, offer the reasonable sacrifice. 
Then King Hezekiah rose early, gathered the rulers of the city, and went up to the house of the Lord, and they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. Then he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. Now, we don't live in the Old Testament. We live in the New Testament under a new covenant in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of bulls, goats, uh, lambs is not what it gives us an atonement for sin. It's the blood of Jesus. However... Our response to the reality of the blood of Jesus is that we bring a sacrifice as well. It's not a sacrifice of shed blood, of goats and and lambs. It's a different sort of sacrifice. We make our bodies a living sacrifice. We give a sacrifice of praise. We give a sacrifice of a broken spirit. In other words, this is what pleases God. Personal action. Listen to what we can bring. We have stuff to bring. Bring your time to God. You see, when you're in your rut, what you have a tendency to do is cling to your time. So, uh, have you ever noticed that when you, your life starts to get filled with a lot of busy things, you start to get upset? You're looking for someone to get mad at. It's like, boy, they just keep piling it on me. Have you ever had that? And what you need to do is give your time to God. Instead of cling to it, it's like, my time, this is my time. I can't believe they're asking for my time. It's not your time. You're clinging to it. Bring your time to God. Sacrifice it. Say, God, it's no longer my time. It's your time. My time here on earth is no longer my time here on earth. It's your time that you live in this body here on earth in the life of Eric Ludi. Your energies. Do you ever notice when you start getting depleted on energies, you start to cling to what you have left? Instead of saying, God, I'm not going to grasp that. I'm going to relinquish it. I'm going to sacrifice it to you. This belongs to you. Here's what I have to bring to you, Lord. Your abilities. People keep asking me to do these favors for them. Hey, you've been given special talents. You've been given that pickup truck. Steve's been given that trailer so he can share it with Eric. (laughs) Sorry, that was my illustration just to plant a seed for the future. Your desires. When you come to that place where you recognize you're in a rut, oftentimes it's because you're serving a desire of agenda in your life or an agenda of desire. In other words, it's like, if I could just get this, if I could, I've always wanted this. And so as a result, you have a tendency to get your eye fixed on that, and then you begin to move forward and lose sight of God and the fact that he's supposed to be in control of your life. And so one of the things you can bring is that desire. It doesn't even mean the desire is bad. It could have been originally given by God, but just like Isaac, to freshly lay it down and to say, God, this belongs to you. And if you want to give it back, that's your business. But this belongs to you. Your resources, especially when you're low in resources, you have a tendency to grasp at what remains. You notice how most people, like, a round of drinks for everyone. Have you ever heard that statement? When someone has a, you know, some great thing happen, then they'll buy everyone a drink. It's usually happening in bars in the old Western movies. But the point being, people are very generous when they have a lot, when they have a blessing. However, when that blessing seems to be depleted, and you're very low, you have a tendency to grasp at what you have instead of freshly giving it to God. Saying, God, I I may only have $5 in my bank account, but here's what I want you to know. That $5 is yours. And your ambitions to the altar. And lay them down before your God. Let him practically take the lead in your life via his Holy Spirit. Listen to this. I just put this in as a fresh reminder that our sacrifices are not the blood of bulls and goats. Listen to this. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. When we humble ourselves and submit our life to him, saying, God, you are everything to me. I am only getting in the way. I do not want to be Ahaz. I want to be Hezekiah. I want to be the king. I want to be the one in this life that rules it properly under your governance. I am broken and humble before you. That is something that God will receive as a sacrifice. Number five, worship and praise the Lord. And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with stringed instruments and with harps. So right now I want you guys to get out those inner cymbals, stringed instruments and harps. Okay, you, I, I'm guessing we have those inside here. The Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah commanded them to offer the burnt offering on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord also began. Isn't that a cool statement? The song of the Lord began. Don't you want to know what song that was? The song of the Lord began. With the trumpets and with the instruments of David, king of Israel. Wouldn't it be fun to have instruments of David? I, here I'm guessing that we have instruments of David. We have instruments that we've been given in this temple to be able to worship God. So all the assembly worshipped. The singers sang and the trumpeters shouted. This is all happening in one flow. Ahaz dies. Hezekiah opens up the temple. They bring offering and they lay it before God. And they worship and praise him. So all the assembly worshipped, the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And when they had finished offering, the king and all who were present with him bowed and worshipped. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the leaders commanded the Levites to sing praise to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph, the seer. So they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed their heads and worshipped. So in this flow, when you begin to recognize an Ahaz rut, what do we do? We repent. We believe. We freshly peristomy, and we open up and receive the Spirit of God, the cleansing, washing grace. We freshly remember that if we've grasped something, we let it go. And we give sacrifice unto our God of our very life, of our time, our resources, our energies, our abilities. And we say, God, this is yours. And we're in this position anyways. We might as well worship the one who is deserving of everything. He's given us instruments, instruments to praise, to sing. Now, you may not know how to use any of these instruments on stage, but you should learn how to use these instruments here of worship and praise. They flow out of humility and a broken heart and a heart of adoration and worship. Personal action. Let's do the same. Let's bow down and worship the Lord, honor him, and praise him. Number six, send out the runners. This is a really interesting statement, especially how God is building us as a church. When I was going through that series on recalibration and revival, one of the statements is that when we are being changed by the Spirit of God, we have to give that which is being given to us. We're given love, we have to give love. We're given kindness from the grace of God, we have to give kindness. We are given the truth of the gospel, now we have to give the truth of the gospel. Hezekiah is seeing a new beginning in his country. Now, nothing has been... This is just the beginning. It's the first month of his rule. He's literally just starting this out afresh. The whole kingdom is being changed. And what does he do? He sends out runners. And Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord of Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. For the king and his leaders and all the assembly in Jerusalem had agreed to keep the Passover in the second month. 
And the matter pleased the king and all the assembly. So they resolved to make a proclamation throughout all Israel, from Beersheba to Dan, that they should come to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem, since they had not done it for a long time in the prescribed manner. Then the runners went throughout all Israel and Judah with the letters from the king and his leaders. So the runners passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, so far as Zebulun, but they laughed at them and mocked them. Nevertheless, some from Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. Any of you that are out sharing the gospel right now know what this feels like. Most will laugh and mock, but there are some. It's interesting, almost like a footnote. Nevertheless, even though it seems that all of them laughed and mocked, nevertheless, some from Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. You see, the kingdom of Israel to the north has gone apostate. They have left God. They've left the worship of Jehovah. They've gone to false gods completely and wholly. They've been taken captive by the Assyrians. There's a few that remain, but they do not want Jehovah. But Hezekiah has something to offer. The temple of God, the true worship of Jehovah, the law of God. He can give them the true Passover. The one that hasn't been celebrated for many years, so he invites them all to come. And even though some, even though most laugh and mock, there are some that will humble themselves and come. Personal action. Consciously choose to communicate the beauty of Christ's work to those around you. Invite everyone to Christ's feast. And knowing full well that those you invite may laugh and mock, do it anyway. So it's an interesting fact. That when we bottle up that which God is doing in us, you see, when you humble yourself and you open the doors to the Holy Spirit and he comes in, he gives you grace. And he replaces the old Ahaz stuff with freshness. What do you do? You have to let it out. You have to give it to others. This is a principle of new life. And if you don't, you will find that you will freshly be in an Ahaz rut. In other words, if we cap this, if we do not send out the runners in our life, if we do not go into the highways and the byways, then we find ourselves afresh in a rut. Which sounds funny, afresh in a rut. Number seven, keep the feast of unleavened bread. It's interesting because everything that we see in this flow is precisely how the new covenant believer functions. We don't have a physical temple that we are going to. It's not Jerusalem that we're, we're coming to offer a sacrifice. We're not, it's not the blood of bulls and goats. Yet everything about this is similar. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. You guys know what that is? That's Passover. You know who died on Passover? Jesus. He was the lamb that was spotless. He is the sacrifice. When we keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we are remembering the cross. We are lifting it high. Now many people, a very great assembly, gathered in Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month. They arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem, and they took away all the incense altars and cast them into the brook Kidron. Then they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the second month. And by the way, it's interesting, but spring and a a new beginning are very similar. This says second month, we think February 14th. In the Jewish calendar, this falls in March uh, time period usually, uh, maybe early April. It's somewhere right in the time we would say is spring. And so this is the new beginning, even in Judah. You see, even the time period on the calendar, this is the beginning of their year too. And this is the first things they're doing. Then the priests and the Levites were ashamed and sanctified themselves. They hadn't been sanctified. Under the rule of Ahaz, they had not gone through the consecration. They hadn't been set apart for the work of the ministry. The temple had been shut. They were ashamed when they recognized they were not prepared to do this. 
and brought the burnt offerings to the house of the Lord. So the children of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing to the Lord, accompanied by loud instruments. And Hezekiah gave encouragement to all the Levites who taught the good knowledge of the Lord. And they ate throughout the feast seven days and offering peace offerings and making confession to the Lord God of their fathers. Then the whole assembly agreed to keep the feast another seven days. And they kept it another seven days with gladness. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep. And the leaders gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep. And a great number of priests sanctified themselves. The whole assembly of Judah rejoiced. Also the priests and Levites, all the assembly that came from Israel, the sojourners who came from the land of Israel and those who dwelt in Judah. So there was great joy in Jerusalem. I mean, we went from Ahaz, complete defeat, to great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. You ever had that in your life where there's a season where we could say, oh, I remember the days back in Solomon's time. Oh, that was good. But ever since then, something's been lost. However, there is a God who desires to bring it back. Bring it back full strength. Then the priests, the Levites, arose and blessed the people. And, laying, and the, their voice was heard and their prayer came up to his holy place, dwelling place to heaven. Personal action. Feast on Christ. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Delight in his presence. Cherish his sacrifice as your own. Take firm hold on the grace offered at the cross and wield it to the fullest possible extent in your life. Function as Christians. I want to give this new life, this new beginning. If you found yourself in an Ahaz rut, get out of it. (laughs) Repent and believe. Open up this life. If you're grasping something, let go of it. If you find yourself clinging to something that belongs to God, you're, you're taking the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches have freshly grabbed you, repent. You see, there's other things that you have gone after, and as a result, thorns have begun to choke out the word of God, and the clarity of truth is lacking. But if you recognize that, pull a Hezekiah. So here's how we function as Christians. This is healthy Christianity. We send out runners and keep the feast uh, of, what was, unleavened bread. I was like, fub, what is that? (laughs) The feast of unleavened bread, fub, and then repeat. (laughs) So what do we do? We do these two things constantly. We send out runners and keep the fub, and then we repeat. We're constantly sending out runners. We're always going out. We're giving that which God has given to us. And then we're cherishing. We're feasting on Christ. We're tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And this is how we maintain health in our Christian life. It's when we get distracted by that metallic gleam in the bush. Or as dogs, squirrel. We have something that will get us off track. And we find ourselves beginning to once again put care into the things of this world. The deceitfulness of riches once again grab us, but from a different angle. They're very deceitful. Riches will always get you. And so as a result, if you find yourself in that trough, in that rut, well, get out and then stay out. And to stay out, we need to constantly send out those runners. We need to be giving the life that God has given us, and we need to be cherishing the sacrifice of Jesus. And then repeat. Keep going. Listen to this. Then the whole assembly agreed to keep the feast another seven days. So the feast of unleavened bread is seven days. But these guys agreed to keep it another seven. 
and they kept it another seven days with gladness. The feast we keep is even greater. So what they had was a shadow of the feast that we keep. Keeping the feast 70 times 7 more weeks. Now here's my thought. Remember how uh, Jesus was talking to Peter about forgiveness? And Peter says, well, I'm supposed to forgive him seven times. And what does Jesus say? (laughs) 70 times 7. What does Jesus mean by that? Does he mean 490? Or does he mean endless? And so when there is an additional seven that we see in the Old Testament, what does it mean to us? Well, how about we translate it as 70 times seven more weeks. And we all agreed to keep this feast 70 times seven more weeks, which means we never stop keeping it with gladness. Let's keep this feast always. Listen to this, Second Chronicles. Then the whole assembly agreed to keep the feast another seven days, and they kept it another seven days with gladness. Why? Because Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep. What has Jesus given us? Far more than Hezekiah gave to Judah. So let's just agree to get out of that rut and stay out of that rut and to keep this feast forever. We never run out of things to feast on in the kingdom of heaven. We have the life of Jesus and it never leaves the plate. It's like the endless plate full of Christ. Let's keep the feast. Keeping the feast of Christ, also known as the Lord's Supper. It would be good to do communion today. We're not set up for it, but I mean, can you imagine the perfect fit for this? So in the uh, Hebrew, you have this word yada, which is the basis of the word thanksgiving. Okay? And it means two things simultaneously. And I've taught on this, I don't know, it was a year or two ago. But it means to lift up and to throw down simultaneous. It's like, don't those two things contradict? In the Hebrew mind, they don't. And the reason is, to lift something up, you have to throw something down. For instance, for me to raise my hands in worship, you know what I have to do? I have to throw down all that inhibits me from doing that. Because there's a part of me, I'm not one of those guys that dances. I'm not very good at dancing. I did it a little swivel hip. I stopped it uh, as quickly as I could. But Eric doesn't dance very well. So if you said, Eric, let's dance. Lead us in a dance. I would say, Bo, lead us in a dance. Uh, I'm not that sort. So what would I have to do to dance? I would have to throw down that which inhibits me from dancing to be able to dance. To lift my arms in worship, what do I have to do? I have to throw down that which inhibits me from lifting my hands in worship. The same is true in everything in Christianity. You'll notice at the cross, there is a lifting up of something. There's also a throwing down of something. This word yada is the basis for thanksgiving. So it means to lift up and throw down simultaneously. Isn't that a funny thing? It's like, how could it mean both? To lift praise, to throw down error. To lift hands in worship, to throw down all that would stand in the way. To lift up a sacrifice, to throw down all hesitation. If you have a sacrifice you're going to lift up, could you imagine... If it was like your kid's favorite lamb, you know how hard it would be? What do you have to do? You have to throw down the hesitation and say God is worthy. And so you throw down the hesitation and lift up the lamb of sacrifice. To lift up one's voice, to throw down all reticence. When you're so, that's actually the term too, to lift up a voice in praise or how about in communicating the gospel? Have you ever had it where you know what you should say, but you're like, what's there? There's a hesitation. There's, there's a hindrance. You need to throw that down. To be able to lift up the voice. And so in all of Christianity, there is this dimension. You have seen the grace of God. If you're going to keep this feast of unleavened bread properly, 
then you need to lift up. You know what the term in the New Testament for the Lord's Supper is? When Jesus gave thanks at the table, it's Eucharisto, which means to lift up in thanksgiving. That's what it means. So we use the Eucharist, well, different uh, parts of Christianity will call it the Eucharist, which is basically thanksgiving. It's not Lord's Supper, it's thanksgiving. That's what this action is. And so if we're going to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread, what are we going to do? We're going to lift high Christ. But even more than that, what did Christ do? On that very day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he lifts his arms. He lifts his hands. Now when we think of lifting hands, usually we're like this. Maybe we should, I can't do it with a microphone. There's the ultimate picture of lifting hands. And when he did, when he lifted his thanksgiving unto God, when he gave himself and his body as a living sacrifice, what did he do? He threw down the devil. He threw down the power of sin. What does he ask us to do? If you're going to take that feast of unleavened bread, what do you need to do? You need to come and pick up your cross and follow him. You need to be willing to die to yourself and yield your body. It's the reasonable act of service. Give him what he purchased. That's how we keep the feast. We give thanks with our own body. We lift high our hands. So a couple of years ago when I was teaching this, I taught two different words because it means two things. Yada yay is sort of the upward. It's, it's lifting up thanksgiving. So lifting up and then yada boo was throwing it down. Some of you guys, you guys have to remember that, don't you? Yada yay and yada boo. I invented those words, by the way, so they're not really Hebrew. If you try and find those in, in the Hebrew, you're not going to find them. So out of yada comes the word, the noun form. Yada is a verb. It's an action. But tada is actually the word thanksgiving. It's a noun. So the hands lifted up toward heaven is actually the word thanksgiving. That's what it means. The praise lifted up to God. That's thanksgiving. It's a noun. Isn't that interesting? The worship lifted up to Jehovah. The sacrifice offered up in love. The confession offered up in humility. The voice lifted up in thanksgiving. The hands, the praise, the worship, the sacrifice, the confession, the voice, all lifted up. These are the tauda. The tauda is the thanksgiving. The tauda are meant to be yada yayed or lifted up. So when we have a thanksgiving offering, when you've seen what Christ has done for you, even though you were in an Ahaz rut, and yet look at what happens. Ahaz dies and Hezekiah rises up, opens the gate, opens the doors of the temple afresh. And what does God do? He shocks the people. This happens so swiftly that it shocked the people, it says in Chronicles. They were not prepared for this. I think even Hezekiah was blown away. It's like, whoa, God is mercy. Even though they deserve judgment. They were in a time of judgment. And in fact, everything about this is the, is the flow headed towards Babylon. The Babylonian captivity is on its way, but during the reign of Hezekiah, God relents and pulls back and says, no, I will give grace because there is humility, because they have opened up those doors of the temple and brought the proper sacrifices afresh. Therefore, I will relent in the judgment I was bringing because Ahaz stinks. The old man leads to judgment. However, when we repent, there is a reprieve, there is a mercy, there is a grace that is offered. So these are the tauda. The tauda are meant to be yada yade, lifted up. And anything that stands against this tauda being lifted up is supposed to be yada booed, thrown down. Introducing tauda giving, thanksgiving. That which you give to God when you yada yay. So thanksgiving, 
Yada yain, lifting up to God that which he deserves. Yada booing, throwing down anything that stands in the way. So today, there is a need to properly respond to Jesus Christ the way Hezekiah did. But to do that, there may be something that is standing in the way. I don't know what it is in your situation. I don't know what you know that the Spirit of God is saying, this is the way you need to go. This is how you need to respond. But there's oftentimes a hindrance. For some of you, you know that you should be going out and sharing the gospel. God has burdened you. He's even given you specific people in your mind. But you have entered into an Ahaz rut because you are negligent in that. And as a result, there's a diminishment of the word of God. A thorn has begun to choke out the clearness of God's word. Where there is something we ought to do, let's go fresh back to that. Our last point of obedience, let's return to it full force. The cross of Jesus, the ultimate thanksgiving offering. The divine foreshadow of the great yada yay. Now many people, a very great assembly, gathered in Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is in Hezekiah's day, okay? This is the foreshadow. So they gather to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month. Note, this is me talking, to do some serious yada yain, to lift up that which is deserving. God is deserving. They arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem. You know what, what the thing they did? They went through all of Jerusalem. Remember, his dad had set up altars to Baal all over the country. So what did they do? They tore them down. They threw them down. If you want to lift up a Thanksgiving offering, go through this land. Allow the Spirit of God to show you any altars to anything of this world, to anything that is false, and to allow the Spirit of God to pinpoint it so that you can tear it down, to get the rubbish out. And they took away all the incense altars and cast them into the brook Kidron. Note, but before the Yada Yain could take place, they had to do some serious Yada Booing. Then they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the second month. The cross, the great yada yay, lifting the lifting up of Jesus, the lifting up of the sacrifice, the lifting up of the righteous one. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And if I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. The cross, the great yada boo, the throwing down of the devil, the throwing down of the old man, the throwing down of sin. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves of sin. He was taken, the handwriting of requirements that was against us and contrary to us, out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Jesus demonstrates for us the ultimate way to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It is a giving up of body, a giving up of life, and in so doing, you throw down the power of the devil. You see, you don't want to live in that rut of Ahaz, so what do you do? You agree with God. And when you agree with God and you humble yourself, you bend your knee and give him his rightful place, you yield up to him all that you are, all that you have, and say, God, this body belongs to you. You purchased it with your blood. Take it. You actually are doing, you are keeping the feast the way God intended it. So how does this apply to us? After all, we certainly can't do better than his sacrifice of Tauda. Jesus gave the perfect sacrifice. So why should we sacrifice anything? This is how we honor him. We are not the saviors of the world. But we are ones that showcase his pattern in these bodies. We are the body of Christ. Introducing the Thanksgiving choir. This is our job. So we're the Thanksgiving choir. 
Now at the dedication of the walls of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgiving and singing, with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. So I brought the leaders of Judah up on the wall and appointed two large thanksgiving choirs. Do you imagine if we named our church thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving Choir? You know, that is one of the best descriptions of what it is. Men and women who lift up their lives unto Jesus who lift up their voices in praise, who lift up their voices in sharing the good news with the lost and dying world. We're a thanksgiving choir. We lift up our voice, humbly submit unto God that which he purchased on the cross. Give it back to him. The church, a.k.a. the large company of Yada Yayers. That's what we are. That could be another name for our church, the Yada Yayers. Yeah, that'd be good. So what are we? We're those who see the cross, Lift up our lives as a sacrifice of thanksgiving in proper response and share in the grand work of that amazing sacrifice as a result. We receive the powerful yada yay of Jesus inside of us in order that we might yada yay always in every situation from then on for all eternity. Paul says, in everything, give thanks. Or, in everything, yada yay. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In every situation, don't grasp, but give up. In every situation, lift up your praise. Lift up your life. Lift up your time, your resource. Give him what is due him. That's thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is more than lifting up thanks. It's lifting up all that he is worthy to receive. So that begs the question, what is he worthy to receive? So if God is deserving of what he is worthy of, what is he worthy of? Now, most of us know the answer to that, but we don't quite allow our life to be conformed to that answer. Because if he is worthy of more than what we're giving him, what should we do? We should give him what he is deserving. He deserves everything. Do you not know, says Paul, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Romans 12, I've been quoting this the whole time. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present, that's peristomy, your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The word reasonable is logikos, which you've heard me teach on logos, or logos, uh, which is the word for word, which is what Jesus is. He's the logos made flesh. And logizomai, which is the term reckoning, that we use reckoning with truth. It is the basis of the word logic. The idea of logic is being honest with truth. If this is what truth is, and I'm honest and subservient to it, it's just thinking. In other words, what is the most just way of thinking? It's to say, this is what truth is, therefore this is what he is owed. That is logikos. What is logikos in the Christian life? Lift up your body and give it to him. What is illogical or illogikos? Polonais has. Claim for yourself that which belongs to God. It leads to death. Why would anyone do that? Why would you keep holding on to something that is killing you? Why would you allow thorns to choke out the word of God if you knew that a thornless soil was possible if you would give up those cares? 
if you would relinquish your, that hold of deceitfulness of riches, and you would not allow anything else to, dis, to distract you from the clear focus on Jesus Christ. He is deserving. Let's keep the feast of unleavened bread the way Jesus Christ has taught us to. To lift high our lives and say, God, you are deserving of all of this. Make us a body that truly is fit to bear your name. So do you crave a new beginning? Repent of your Ahaz rut and start pulling a Hezekiah right now, today. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.